When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Many activists at the forefront of the global Me Too movement are demanding a seat at decision-making tables. Too often we know that the people who are making policy are neither women nor are they survivors. So to many local activists, gender parity and representation is really a precondition to fixing the power imbalances that have allowed leaders to turn a blind eye to sexual harassment and abuse for so long. That was Rachel Vogelstein talking about how the Me Too movement has swept the world. And the result, she says, is a global women's movement that is now more diverse, more powerful, and more far-reaching than at any point in history. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. The worldwide success of Me Too and the work it has sparked is the subject of a new book titled Awakening, written by Rachel and her co-author, Megan Stone, both affiliated with the Council on Foreign Relations, where Rachel has been director of the Women and Foreign Policy Program. The good news from Awakening is that we've entered a new era for women's rights, and its leaders are fighting not only gender discrimination, but also against censorship and repression. It's a fight that can make life better for everyone. Listen and learn about this new era and why Rachel Vogelstein is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm here today with Rachel Vogelstein, the co-author with Megan Stone of Awakening, the brand new book which I really recommend. And we're going to discuss it today. It's about how the Me Too movement has gone global. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, your book is about how the Me Too movement has spread to women all around the world, how they've taken it and made it their own, which is uh, obviously a terrific news uh, in dealing with this terrible issue that the Me Too movement uh, is all about. 
Can you give us some brief summary uh, about what the impact of Me Too has been globally? I think we're quite aware of what's happened here at home, but maybe you could give us a snapshot of what's happening around the world. You know, most people know, as you suggest, about the Me Too movement that swept across the United States in 2017. Awakening is a book that tells you the story you don't yet know about the remarkable global impact of the Me Too movement. And although this movement no longer dominates daily headlines here in the United States, what we found in our research is that the Me Too movement isn't over. In fact, it's bigger than ever. What was a wildfire has evolved into a slow burn, one that shows no signs of being extinguished. Today, in more than 100 countries, everyday women are defying cultural expectations of silence and shame, and they're using digital organizing to demand change. Our research on the front lines of this campaign suggests that a fundamental recalibration of the status of women and girls is underway, and it's being driven by technology that has empowered more women than ever before to come forward of all races, ethnicities, classes, religions, and across geographic lines. You know, and that's so interesting because uh, technology, in particular social media, can be such a malign influence uh, on women and be very hurtful. And in this case, it's really having a remarkably positive influence. That's right. You know, there are many examples of the downsides of the internet and social media for women. These are tools that have been used to track, harass, and defame women to try and silence their voices. But what we have found is that there's a positive good news story here, that 21st century tools have really transformed both the methods and the speed of the global women's movement. You know know better than anyone that during earlier eras, victories for women's rights were often won only after lifetimes of organizing. It took more than a century for women globally to win the right to vote. It took decades, as you know, to enshrine women's rights as human rights into international law. And today, in contrast, thanks to its advances in technology, the movement can mobilize millions in a matter of weeks or even days. It's really remarkable to hear uh, all of this. And it is true. It did take a long time in those earlier eras for us to make the slightest progress. So how would you describe the success of the Me Too movement overseas? Is it more successful uh, than in the United States? Is it different? Is it harder for women to become engaged in this way in the Me Too movement? I think what we found is that the access to technology that has characterized the Me Too movement all around the world, here in the U.S. and in other nations, has been particularly important for women globally. Social media, smartphones have not only accelerated the pace of the movement, but also its inclusivity. These are tools that have diversified the global women's movement, granting purchase to anyone with access to an internet connection and helping women find new strength in numbers. We write in the book that the internet in some respects has become a 21st century public square for women, especially in places where their freedom is circumscribed and they can't gather safely in public, perhaps, but they can post anonymously online. And so the result is a global women's movement that is now more diverse, more powerful, and more far-reaching than at any point in history. 
And in the book, uh, you describe uh, what's happening with this movement in seven countries. And I'm going to name them just in case our listeners have a special interest in one or another of them. Uh, But it's Brazil, China, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sweden, and Tunisia. And that is really a, a mixed group because some are clearly advanced on women's uh, issues, uh, and others uh, have had uh, real troubled histories in terms of uh, their impact on progress for women. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about these countries, which has been the most difficult uh, for women, if you can say, and how has the impact of Me Too changed there, for example? Well, we write about some of the hardest places in the world to be a woman, as you mentioned, Um, you know, certainly countries like Egypt, uh, Pakistan, women have faced incredible challenges in coming forward about sexual harassment and abuse. But I'd like to talk about China, because I think Me Too organizing, we found, is often most challenging under authoritarian regimes where public and online protest is curtailed. So we know that in China, Me Too activists were fighting not only against sexual abuse, but also against censorship and arbitrary detention. And there, the movement predated the Me Too hashtag going viral in 2017. Back in 2012, we started to see a rise in digitally organized feminist activism that was largely focused on protesting domestic violence, also harassment, and broader issues of discrimination against women. And because the government would quash organized protests in the street, activists chose to create performance art stunts that would go viral online, such as a 2012 Valentine's Day protest in bloody wedding dresses to highlight the scourge of domestic violence in marriage, or a subway performance to protest harassment and groping on public transportation or protesting university admissions policies that explicitly favored men. And initially, this activism, which translated online, began to work. We saw the Ministry of Education prohibit gender quotas and admissions for the first time. And then in 2015, China enacts a long-sought anti-domestic violence law. But at the same time that the movement starts starts to succeed, the government then starts to crack down on many of these activists, concerns that student activism, youth activism on behalf of gender equality could be used to foster broader demands for government change. So in 2015, I know you remember well, on International Women's Day, there were dozens of feminists in 10 cities who were planning to protest on public transportation against sexual harassment. and the government struck. The authorities rounded up five women who we write about in the book on the dubious grounds of picking quarrels and creating a disturbance, a pretense that's often used to lock up human rights activists, and held these women known around the world subsequently as the Feminist Five for a grueling 37 days. Lee Maisie is one of those five women. We write about her in the book, and she talks about the experience of being incarcerated, and of course, the the challenging conditions. One of her compatriots ends up having a heart attack while incarcerated. Uh, These uh, attempts at censorship and silencing women worked for a while. And then we see Me Too explode globally, and women find strength in the movement going viral around the world. 
and also start to deploy incredible creativity, again, using digital tools. So after the text phrase, Me Too, is banned, women began to use images that were harder to track, such as an emoji picture of a rice bowl, which is pronounced me, and a bunny, which is pronounced too. You know, historically, the censors could control speech by immediately deleting posts. But with widespread participation of women, the same post would be reposted again and again, which would ultimately exhaust and elude the censors. So we saw the movement actually spread to all walks of life, to academia, to leaders in journalism, to philanthropy, the arts, even to women on factory floors, really because of the sheer power of the number of women who were willing to come forward, who were ultimately able to circumvent censorship for a period of time. Now, this activism is not without cost. We talked about the incarceration of the Feminist Five, and today the government has detained or imprisoned many top activists. We know that many of those who've spoken out have lost their jobs. Still others are in exile in the United States or elsewhere. But that said, because of the rise in women's voices, we are also seeing that social norms in China are changing, and ultimately the government cannot imprison half the population. So I think what the challenging conditions in China really show is that women's movements have the potential not only to change women's rights, but also to undermine authoritarian governments. And so as such, they really deserve more support. And that's also another reason why the authoritarian governments push back more, uh, because they're afraid of the power of these movements. I wonder, uh, in terms of China, uh, you mentioned that they passed a domestic violence law, which is really quite a progressive step. Has that law been implemented? Has it made any difference? There are really a lot of challenges with respect to implementation. You know, what we ended up seeing even after the passage of that law was a flurry of other proposed changes that really followed from Me Too activism. So the Chinese government goes on to issue proposed alterations to the civil code that defined and prohibited sexual harassment in the workplace for the first time. We saw the Ministry of Education issue new guidelines about sexual harassment in academia, given the large volume of students that came forward to name professors who had harassed them. The government then enacts a directive prohibiting job advertisements for men only or asking female applicants about marriage or family plans during the interview process. So those are really significant changes over a short period of time. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of work still to be done in terms of implementation. But part of what we have showed through the reporting we've done in Awakening is that we are seeing remarkable changes at record speed, in part because of the mass movement that has been aided and abetted by technology. I think it's a, just a wonderful example that you chose to really illuminate how all of this has worked in a, in a difficult uh, place, for sure. Now, we just marked, not too long ago, the 10-year anniversary of the Arab Spring, and I think Many of us will recall the images of Tahrir Square and the fact that women were extraordinary leaders in that movement in, in so many countries that uh, uh, had their, their spring, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the spring has certainly foundered. Uh, many of us talk about the spring turning into winter. But I wonder, 
given the aftermath of Arab Spring, how did it affect the Me Too movement in that region? Was it as a result of what happened during the Arab Spring and the fact that it didn't take hold in terms of change the way that was hoped for, did Me Too come around as another opportunity? You know, in the book, we write about how the Me Too revolution looks very different in Egypt versus Tunisia, two countries that were both at the heart of the Arab Spring back in 2011 and yet are on very different paths today. You know, in Tunisia, there was a campaign, the Ena Zenda campaign, which translates to Me Too in Tunisian dialect. And it was incredibly successful with women building on the organizing and activism they led during the Arab Spring to use online tools to come forward about powerful abusers in parliament, in the university system, and in other areas of life, which resulted in significant changes. Women there are participating in their government, demanding change, and are focused on enforcing protections against sexual harassment and violence. In Egypt, in contrast, Me Too organizers and women's rights activists have faced a much harder road, finding themselves labeled as a threat to the state, the country that they'd hoped after the Arab Spring to help remake. We know that Egypt is now governed by al-Sisi, a strongman who has presided over a degradation of human rights. That means that women who assert their rights are at risk of violence, not only within their homes or communities, but also at the hands of the state. So although the Egyptian movement, which was known as the Anna Common Movement, which again translates to Me Too, has gone viral, its leaders have been labeled extremists who are accused of spreading false news that harms security and national interests. But I'll note that even though women have paid an extremely high price in Egypt for speaking out, digital networks were absolutely instrumental in not only helping women find courage, but also strength in numbers to circumvent some of the obstacles they face. And in the book, we write about these courageous activists who are really facing impossible odds and deserve more of our support. And that's a, a very good point to make because um, so many people who take these kinds of risks in order to advance their rights and really progress for women pay a price for it. We've seen that, obviously, throughout history. Uh, many of the people with whom we've talked uh, about historical figures have noted that. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to 
stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You know, I was a little surprised to see Sweden on your list because we know that Sweden is one of the most progressive places for the protection of women's rights advancement. Why did you include it? Well, that was exactly why we picked it. We, you know, Sweden tops the list of, of virtually every index that measures gender equality. Uh, Swedes think of their country as the most gender equal in the world. And we know they have generous parental leave, childcare policies. When I was there, the streets were teeming with fathers pushing strollers alongside mothers. And yet what was fascinating was that the Me Too movement ultimately punctured this preconception of Sweden as a utopia for women and really helped awaken Swedes to some of the persistent gender inequalities that remain even there. You know, the Swedish Me Too movement was ignited by a courageous woman named Cici Valin, a Swedish actress and writer who alleged that she was raped by a prominent male journalist. She ultimately, uh, after going to the police with her claim to no avail, is inspired by the Harvey Weinstein expose that she reads about in the New York Times and decides to post her account online and quickly found numerous other women came forward to make disturbingly similar accusations about this same man. You know, after Cece's initial public accusation, what was interesting is that women in Sweden largely decided against publicly outing individual men who had harassed and assaulted them and instead chose to amass their stories anonymously online in order to increase the number of women coming forward, but also to emphasize that this is not an issue about a few individual bad apples, but instead is a form of systemic discrimination. So activists went on to organize across 65 different industries in Sweden to really make this point that this was not about a, a, a number of individuals in a particular field, but was actually a scourge that women faced regardless of where they worked. And they were incredibly creative. They used humorous hashtags that helped the movement not only go viral, but stay viral. For example, restaurant workers posted under a Swedish phrase that translates to, we are boiling with rage. The healthcare workers posted under a phrase that translates to, now it will really hurt. You know, the unions posted under not negotiable. Um, for sports, it was timeout, uh, similar to the US hashtag times up. 
by using these clever hashtags and, of course, focusing on this collective experience of women rather than the guilt or innocence of particular men, the Swedish Me Too movement was able to take a lot of ground. And yet, even in Sweden, challenges remain, which is really exemplified by the case of Cici Wallin, whose host was the one that sparked the Swedish Me Too movement. Cici is ultimately sued by her alleged attacker for defamation. And despite the fact that numerous other women came forward to make similar allegations against him, he wins his defamation suit with Cici sentenced to pay him damages for the injury that she caused his reputation. And this is a tactic that we see employed by powerful men all around the world. And it shows how our justice systems really do still cry out for reform. How maddening is an outcome like that? My goodness. Well, you know, Rachel, you have truly met some of the most amazing women um, in the countries that uh, you visited to research this book. You must have so many memories of them. Are there particular ones that stand out for you? You know, there's an incredibly courageous woman that we write about in our chapter on Brazil, whose name is Marielle Franco. And she comes to power on a wave of activism that, as in other countries, really predates the Me Too movement going viral in 2017 here in the U.S. Way back in 2013 and then in 2015, there were activists in Brazil using digital technology to not only amass numbers of women who were coming forward under a hashtag Meo Primero Cidio, which translates to my first harassment, but they also used this technology to help visualize electronically the pervasiveness of harassment on a map so that women could post locations of their assaults in real time and really drive home the point that this wasn't about particular neighborhoods or particular parts of the country or the city. This was really pervasive. Women in Brazil then began to turn these campaigns against sexual harassment into campaigns for political power. And that gives rise to this remarkable election in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro of this courageous woman, Marielle Franco, who is a, an Afro-Brazilian lesbian human rights activist from the favelas, from the urban slum, who no one expects to win political power in a country that is largely controlled by wealthy white men. But then in 2016, she is elected in a revolution, in a landslide, where she ends up getting the fifth highest number of votes out of the 50 candidates who win. You know, in the end, she pays the ultimate price for her advocacy. She's assassinated by those who opposed her commitment to end harassment and discrimination. But as her chief of staff told us when we interviewed her, the people who killed Marielle thought that they buried her and instead they planted a seed because following her assassination, a record number of women and women of color in particular who were inspired by her decided to run for office and women's political representation in the 2018 federal elections jumps from 10 to 15%. So there's still a long road ahead, particularly under Brazil's current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has fought tooth and nail against women's rights. But what's fascinating in Brazil and about Marielle's story is because of her example, women in Brazil are assuming more positions of power in record numbers, and that power will ultimately give them the opportunity to transform the entire agenda. So even though she paid the price uh, with her own life, 
Uh, there's been so much good that has come out of uh, her taking the risks she did. But you also remind me in talking about Mary Ellie that so many women in politics today are truly vulnerable. Uh, and we're seeing spikes, uh, particularly in countries that are pushing back on women's lives and harassments of one kind or another against women in politics. You know, that's right. And in the book, we outline a proposed agenda for for progress, for really turning protest into progress. And we've come to refer to this agenda as the five R's, which are redress for survivors, reform of the law, representation for women, resources for implementation, and a recalibration of social norms. And one of these R's, representation, really gets at what you just identified. Many activists at the forefront of the global Me Too movement are demanding a seat at decision-making tables. Too often, we know that the people who are making policy are neither women nor are they survivors. So to many local activists, gender parity and representation is really a precondition to fixing the power imbalances that have allowed leaders to turn a blind eye to sexual harassment and abuse for so long. Well, we clearly need to see those five R's implemented across the board. Uh, We're running out of time, and I want to ask you a couple of things quickly. Um, One is, we've been talking about how Me Too went global. We know that Me Too started in the United States. Have we in the United States anything to learn from the experiences of Me Too overseas? Absolutely. You know, in the nations that we went to, as you well know, women have long organized for their own equality. And in many countries, we actually saw that online activism on behalf of women's rights predates the popularization of the Me Too hashtag here in the U.S. And women overseas, in part because of the barriers they faced, have had to be incredibly courageous. And we have a lot to learn, not only from their courage, but their creativity in ways that they were able to circumvent restrictions. You know, I think of an example from Brazil where when women started coming forward both online and in the street about experiences of sexual harassment, the media, which had previously prohibited journalists from writing about these issues, began covering them extensively. But the attention, although welcome, was still being filtered through the voices of white men who largely dominated the media landscape. And we interviewed one activist, her name is Manuela Miklos, who was frustrated that those writing about this women's movement, this rise in activism, were almost exclusively privileged men. And she laughed, I remember, in our interviews, saying that all of the men would say in their columns, women are trying to say something. If only we could hear them. How can we hear them? And her observation was, how can they if everyone is only reading what men have to say? So to ensure that women would get to speak for themselves... Without a filter, Manuela and her colleagues decided that Brazilian women ought to do more than merely protest online or in the streets. They needed to occupy the entire narrative. So they used digital tools to assemble a campaign over Facebook, requesting that every male columnist in the four biggest newspapers in Brazil, and as well as the most popular male bloggers, invite women to write in their place. And as privileged women, Manuela and her colleagues had access to many of these men who had columns. And they used their power not only to raise their own voices, but to insist that a diverse group of women could have their voices heard. And ultimately, they wrote to the author of the most read blog in Brazil, which naturally is about football or soccer, as we call it here in the United States. And he ends up publishing a piece immediately after a championship match 
that's written by his daughter who had posted a few weeks earlier about her first experience with harassment, an encounter she had never told him about. And millions upon millions of men logged on after this championship match, you know, expecting to read a post-game analysis and instead found this heartfelt post about machismo and abuse. So this media occupation, which went on for weeks, became bigger than anything its organizers could have expected. And that's the type of creativity that all of us can learn from in whichever country we reside, because all of us have work to do on these issues. Creativity and representation, in this case, in all of these op-ed columns. I I just uh, love the story. It's terrific. So, Rachel, in conclusion here, let's talk about hope. This is a difficult topic, but yet it's a book about hope. It's a book about change. After writing it, what gives you particular hope from all of these interviews and all of the experiences that you heard about, the ups and downs and the some of the terrible risks people took? You know, I am extremely hopeful after taking the journey around the world that I had the opportunity to take to write this book. What we found in every country we traveled to was a growing number of women who will no longer be silent about harassment, abuse, and discrimination, or about the persistent power imbalances at home and in the workplace. In the book, we share story after story about women for whom justice may be delayed or deferred, women who may be imprisoned or assaulted, but more women keep coming nonetheless. So I think about the determination of the women that we met, the determination of computer science graduate Luo Zhizhi in China, who was inspired by the viral Me Too campaign that went global to break her silence after 13 years and name the professor who had harassed her when she was at university, thereby triggering a movement across China. You know, I think of the bravery of women like Marielle Franco, who we talked about, who courageously ran for office against the odds in order to combat harassment and discrimination and has left a legacy of women's participation in her wake. Or the defiance of the Swedish writer Cici Valin, who decided to speak publicly and remains determined to protect others, even after she is found guilty of defaming the man that she accused. You know, after meeting these women and watching this current wave of women's activism travel across the entire globe, I cannot help but be hopeful. Well said. And I think having read it myself uh, and being so interested in this topic, obviously. Awakening is a must-read for anybody who cares about these issues, and I hope our listeners will get their own copies of Awakening, hashtag MeToo, and the global fight for women's rights. Thank you so much, Rachel Vogelstein. Thank you for having me. Rachel Vogelstein and Awakening really give us hope for a better tomorrow. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, we can thank technology for much of the progress of the latest women's movements. Too often, women have experienced tech and social media as a source of harassment. But when these forces are harnessed for good, we can achieve so much. Second, we need to recognize that these new women's movements are doing vital and often dangerous work. In China, for example, the government recognizes that women's movements have the potential not only to change the landscape for women's rights, 
but also to undermine authoritarianism. So activists have been detained, lost their jobs, or gone into exile. That's why it's important to support these women's efforts. Finally, let's applaud the fact that these new movements are motivating women around the world to demand a seat at the tables of power where the decisions are made. And when governments are truly representative, everyone benefits. Tune in next Thursday to hear our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.